give God's word, I'd love for you to turn to Mark chapter number 10 this morning. Mark chapter number 10. That's where we'll spend most of our time. We'll take our reading from verses 1 through 12 just to uh, gain the context. Uh, We'll focus in for most of the exposition this morning on verses 6 through 9. And if you're willing and able, I'd love for you to stand for the reading of God's word out of reverence for it. Mark chapter 10, verse number 1. Mark writes, by the inspiration of the Spirit of God, these infallible words. Then he arose from there and came to the region of Judea by the other side of the Jordan. Multitudes gathered to him again, and and as he was accustomed, he taught them again. The Pharisees came and asked him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Testing him. And he answered and said to them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to dismiss her. And Jesus answered and said to them, Because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote to you this precept. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. And the house of his disciples also asked him again about the same matter. So he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Let's pray. God, again, we thank you and just revel in your glory and majesty. Father, we think about Christ and we think about all that he is and all that he's done and all that, Father, he continues to do. And we think how unworthy we are. Um, Father, we are truly unworthy. Um, But we don't question your grace. Um, Father, we recognize that um, prior to Christ, outside of him, we had nothing to offer, nothing to bring. Uh, Father, we were, as the prophet says, um, all we had was filthy rags before a holy God. The gap was too great to span by a man. So God became man, took upon himself the form of a servant, and to, in essence, to wash our feet, to serve us, and to give his life a ransom for many. And we praise you for that. We praise you for that because out of all the generations and out of all the geography, out of all the great philosophers, intellects, scientists, and greatest minds of our age, they could have never concocted such a, such a thing. Um, Father, they've devised other ways to take over the world and to build their own kingdoms, Father, and everyone has failed. Um, but as your precious son said, the, gate, said, the gates of hell will never prevail against the church, and that is true. Um, here we are, 2,000 years removed, Father, and you still have your kingdom. You still have your people. You still have your precious bride for whom your son died, Father, and a small portion of that, an eternal representation of that um, sits before us. God, would you help me to handle her with care? God, would you help me to handle your word with care, Father? Would you you help me to be faithful this morning to the word of God? Would you help the people to be faithful this morning to the word of God as they receive it? Father, would you um, help us to guard against the desire to be um, edgy, new, um, fresh, inventive, creative? um, Just help us to be stewards. Um, who've been given a, a household to manage, um, Father, and uh, would we handle it well? 
Lord, would we handle it with care? Would we handle it faithfully? Father, with the word of God, we pray, we trust that it goes forth with power, and that even in our, our um, uh, incapacity, insufficiency, Father, you take the word of God into places that we can't go. And we trust you with that. We trust you to give ears to hear, eyes to see, Father, and hearts to receive. God, because we can't accomplish that this morning. I mean, even as I preach, Father, would you just accomplish a mighty work in my heart of faith, um, God, that would just dispel all fears of man and just give me a, a um, striving confidence in the things of the Lord, Father. Would you clear up some, some muddy areas even in my mind this morning, Father, as we attend to your word? Father, would you meet the needs of your people this morning, those that are brokenhearted, Father, those that are discouraged, those that are joyless, um, Father, those that are um, unclear on some things, Father, would you just meet their needs, Father, according to your riches and glory? Would you give them the faith, Father, to believe that you're able? God, would you give them confidence in you this morning, Father, as your word is preached? Father, again, we just um, praise you for this opportunity and just pray that you would accomplish eternal things, Father, as we gather around your word. Um, we give this time to you now, Father. I pray just for a few moments, undistracted, um, focused on you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you. Once again, over the past year, for those of you visiting with us, we've been simply trekking verse by verse to the book of Mark. A lot of things I would like to preach this morning, but um, when you preach verse by verse, um, you don't choose the text. Providentially, um, the text is chosen for you. Sometime around a year and a half ago, we uh, began a series on marriage and tried to preach, not exhaustively, but somewhat in-depth on what marriage was. And I trust that for many of you, it was a blessing. I know that it was for my own heart. Um, to take me back into uh, the depths of uh, the relationship between a husband and a wife and what that is to be, but also what a relationship between a father and a son or a mother and a daughter and, and vice versa. And I trust that the Lord um, benefited all of us through that. I, I pray that he did anyway. But at the same time, it doesn't matter how long you go, how deep it seems that you have gotten um, in any type of series, any type of study, any type of reading of God's Word, um, there's always a need for more, you know. And as I went through my old notes this week on some of those things related to marriage, and I began to study in new depths, I, even before I, I began to wonder, oh, I'm going to preach the same sermon again, but it's amazing how God often meets you there through the preaching of God's Word as you listen to new sermons and the Word of God works through the Spirit of, um, through His Spirit, uh, um, through men who, who are faithful to the Word of God, or even, even as you just take the text and you, and you focus in and you spend time and you just meditate upon God's promises, God's Word, and God's design, um, how much more He convicts you of your own sin and He leads you in the way of righteousness to love your wife even more so um, than what you did before. Um, how our love will never be perfect for one another until Christ returns. Um, as in that uh, great instance in Revelation 21, you know, in that final day when we meet Him face to face, until then we strive for that perfection 
Until then, our knowledge is always imperfect. And, and in that, we continue to pursue the great doctrines that are laid before us and the great text um, that God has preserved for that reason. And just how this week I was reminded um, of the great need of sacrifice and unconditional love and the covenant that I made with my wife and with God and how far I fall um, from the glory in those things and how much I need Christ um, to remind me of the great love wherewith He loved me. And that is to be the example in which I pour out my love for my wife and she reciprocates that love to me and, and how the gospel is to be an example to our children through the very relationship that we have. And, and that's what I pray for you today. If you sat through those sermons and you think, oh, here we go again, um, I pray that God would change your heart. And that today he would give you a new, fresh love for him, but also a new, fresh love um, for one another. So, Jesus turns in Mark chapter 10 uh, from his account of teaching on um, the gospel, on the teaching of servanthood, on the teaching of the kingdom, on the teaching of um, eradicating sin in the life of a believer, and oh, how we needed that. Um, but here I see a break in the text, and we have an entirely new account. From Mark chapter 8 all the way through Mark chapter 9, I think those things were connected. Um, but he leaves that teaching, and he turns to teaching again to his disciples. That was the primary um, reason that our Lord came, other than going to the cross. I think it was the, the preaching and teaching. Our Lord and Savior was that. Um, he wasn't a dancer. He wasn't a creative. He wasn't a, a this or that. He wasn't a, a. He simply took the texts generally of the Old Testament scriptures and expounded those uh, with a new covenant lens. Uh, that's not all that he did. Oftentimes, he gave new and fresh teaching from God's word. Um, but oftentimes, he just revealed those eternal truths um, seated in the Old Testament and he revealed them to the disciples and to the scribes and the Pharisees in a new way. And I think that's exactly what you're going to find in, um, in this text. In verses 1 and 2, we read, Then he arose from there and came to the region of Judea by the other side of Jordan, and multitudes gathered to him again. And as he was accustomed, he taught them again. And the Pharisees came and asked him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife, testing him? I mean, it's really at this point in this juncture that we see Jesus um, really set his face towards Jerusalem in a geographical way. Um, from here on out, you're going to see him moving through towns for that particular purpose. All along the way, he set his face, but all along the way, he's going to teach. All along the way, he's going to disciple. Um, every time that he gets opportunity, every question that's asked, I don't think that it went um, unanswered or untended. Um, our Lord was essentially a teacher, a preacher of God's Word, and He takes opportunity here again to teach. Um, some Pharisees began to question our Lord. Then uh, the, the text essentially says, and in the parallel accounts, that they did it for a particular reason. Um, it was to test Him. And you can believe this or not, but I'm convinced that in part what the Pharisees here are trying to do are not only to entangle our Lord in some, some um, false teaching, as they often do, but I, I'm convinced that it's already in the hearts and minds of the, of the people, um, the religious elite, to crucify our Lord. And maybe not to crucify Him specifically, but that they wanted him, him dead. So I'm convinced that this questioning, and again, we can disagree on this, this is speculation on my part, um, but this would be the perfect uh, question to entangle our Lord 
um, that would get him killed. And you think back to our, our friend John the Baptist, our brother in Christ, um, and that's exactly what happened to him. It was John's pointed comments towards Herod, who was in an adulterous relationship with his brother's wife. Um, it wasn't necessarily for the explicit preaching of the gospel, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John the Baptist stood with a moral compass and pointedly preached the law um, to men like Herod, and that was exactly what got him killed. I think that the questioning often in our Lord's life from scribes and Pharisees um, is often pointed at that. Can we entangle him in something that's going to, uh, it's going to force him to label someone or some particular person um, in such a way that will lead to his departure, lead to his imprisonment, lead to his containment? It could also very well be that these men are seeking to entangle Jesus in comments that will um, simply prove that he's not a prophet. And that was often the case, especially in the beginning, that if he, he doesn't know the Old Testament Scriptures or he gets something wrong or um, he prophesies something that's not correct, and we can identify him as a false prophet, and, um, and then we can, then we can um, somewhat deter others from following him. We can ruin his fellowship um, in that sense, which, which at this point really, I don't know why it really worries them as much as it should. He doesn't have a great following. I mean, he lost it. He lost it when he started preaching a, a hard gospel. I mean, he lost it at some point whenever he began to preach hard things. Um, he doesn't have a tremendous following with him at this moment. Um, it's, it's simply his disciples and maybe a, a, small, a small crowd. But, but anyway, um, the account is that the, the um, scribes, the Pharisees, these men, they come and they ask him why to entangle him and to test him, to ruin his... Um, his identity as a prophet and possibly even to lead um, to his death. What did they question him on? Um, it was on divorce. Divorce. Um, just like today, there's a lot of um, questions related to marriage, remarriage, and divorce. It was not anything different in those days. I mean, in those days, there was much like the Christian community today and even the community outside of Christ um, there's a lot of questions, there's a lot of different attitudes, there's a lot of different beliefs concerning marriage, uh, remarriage, and divorce. Um, in the context of uh, New Testament Judaism and what would have been happening here today, and there's many beliefs. There was a belief in a community, in the Qumran community, that no divorce or remarriage under any circumstances um, was allowed. And it, it, they go even as far to say that even in the case of being widowed, um, they did not believe in divorce or remarriage. Uh, most Christians throughout the ages have believed that what is partly happening here is a debate among rabbis. There was a rabbi by the name of Shammai who believed that the Torah instructed that divorce was permitted for any type of sexual indecency, not only adultery, but any type of defilement. And there was another rabbi by the name of Hillel that permitted divorce for any kind of offense, real or imagined. I mean, it could simply, you know, and the, the, the general joke is, is, um, is um, uh, but it's true. Um, that, that, they, that men would often uh, divorce a wife or put her away simply for ruining breakfast or burning the toast. He could be on the way to the market and uh, find a woman that is, that is uh, more beautiful in his eyes than she was, and he would find a way as he got home um, to put her away so, why that, so that he could remarry. But the divorce rate in those days was not much different than the divorce rate in our days. The views of marriage were not quite as different. I know that we look at New Testament times or ancient uh, realms and we think that, man, that those were the glory days when, 
when uh, men were men and women were women, and, and this, but, uh, but, but, but the world has always been plagued by, um, by love of self and a desire to, to pursue happiness any and every way that we so desire. And it was no different in the nation of Israel. Even among the people of God, the rabbis, the Pharisees had determined ways and formulated and concocted um, certain doctrines, even out of the even utilizing the tool of the Word of God um, to give them no restraint in their desires. The divorce rate was rampant; it was scandalous among even um, the nation of Israel and and God's people. That's in verse 3, our Lord answers and He says, What did Moses command you? That's His response. I love it. Um, that's a great way to teach, asking questions. It's a, it, it makes them work through um, the question themselves and work to the answer themselves. And you can really get to the bottom of the, um, the, the, the reason they're asking the question by, by asking them to critically think through it. Um, and you can discern oftentimes um, their purpose behind even the question. So the question is, is what does Moses command you? And they answered, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to, miss, and to dismiss her. And Jesus answered and said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. And the reference that he's referencing here, our Lord is, or the, 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 the Pharisees are actually referencing back to the Old Testament to Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. And if you go to that passage, you don't need to turn it there now, but I would encourage it later, that that's not a command at all. It's a bare permission because of the hardness of their hearts. Jesus in his questioning is trying to drive the Pharisees back um, to what God originally commanded in marriage. He doesn't even give attention to divorce in his questioning. But of course, the Pharisees have their sights set on the act of divorce and not marriage, so they run to the text on divorce and not the text on marriage. And there's no doubt in my mind that part of the questioning of the Pharisees was to simply justify their immortal lifestyles and the rampant divorce rates. They wanted to know what they could get away with. And the great um, trespass in this text um, is that the people of God would utilize the very means of grace, the Word of God, um, as the tool um, to throw off all restraint. Which makes this offense greater than the pagan world. And the atheists and the agnostics and these people who abandon the Word of God, um, who, who pursue their own desires, you can almost have more respect for people like that because they're, uh, they're real, you know, um, and they're open and they're honest. Um, it's, 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 it's a greater offense when the people of God, those whom have the text and have the Word of God and seek to uh, at least externally um, adhere to God's Word in such a way um, and then they utilize the Word of God as the very means to throw off and cast off um, God's design and His desire. He reminds them, our Lord reminds them, that there was revelation before that. Deuteronomy 24, men, is not where we need to start. Um, while there was concession because of the hardness of heart, that was not the command. Concessions were made. But Christ does not even give attention to those. 
um, but to the original plan. The concessions are made for a fallen world. That divorce was one of those in very limited circumstances. Um, but our Lord doesn't even give attention to that. He gives attention to the original design. And you see that in verses 6 through 9. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. And in some sense, he does give attention to divorce in that very last word, let not man separate. And what we see is we see God's original design. We see a creation ordinance that still is constituted and perpetuates even to that day. That God instituted marriage as a creation ordinance. That God made them male and he made them female. That God made husband and wife as covenant companions. And that God made husband and wife to be one flesh. And that God ordained this union in its beginnings um, to, and, and would perpetuate as a permanent union. And we understand, again, the concessions made for a fallen world, but we're not going to give a lot of attention to that this morning. Uh, we understand the nature of divorce and just the, um, and just the heart-wrenching nature of it, even when the concession is biblical, you know? I mean, we'll give attention to that in the coming weeks. But this morning, I want to give attention to what our Lord gave attention to. And if we're going to argue against divorce, then we must argue for a marriage union by God's design that is perpetual in nature. We need to understand the purpose of it. Because until then, um, marriage will not be protected. Marriage will not be guarded. Marriage will not be guided. Marriage will end um, in the way that... Um, our Pharisee friends here um, have tried to perpetuate, and you see that as, as well. So again, in verse number six, is, um, our Lord begins with creation. This is actually a quotation from Genesis chapter 2 in verse number 24. You read the account of God on the sixth day making man. And in verse 23, maybe we can read in verse 22, he writes these words. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he had made into a woman. And he brought her to the man, and Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She, called, she shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, and be joined to his wife, and they shall, be one, they shall become one flesh. One flesh. And what we see is that from the very beginning, marriage is the initial building block of all civilization. But it's more than just physical. Um, it's a spiritual union between two people, man and woman, male and female, um, that is covenantal in nature and has a particular purpose in God's plan. Thus, it must be protected. And thus, it cannot be and should not be divided. And marriage is a good gift of God, ordained from the very beginning of creation. You know, some have argued otherwise, and some argue otherwise even today. And not only um, those that are rebellious against Christianity, but even those from within Christianity. Why? Because we've seen what man has done with marriage. And it's heartbreaking. And it's heartbreaking within the union as well. It's heartbreaking um, when a husband commits adultery on a wife, or vice versa, or this or that. Um, there, there's not much more difficult things to deal with pastorally, um, than 
those things which would erode at and ultimately defile and, 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 and begin to take root in the hearts of these two people um, and which could possibly separate them to that day. I believe that all sin is sin and all sin is worthy of death, but I can tell you, you know, that there's not many more sins that I have dealt with in this life that are not marriage-related um, in a pastoral room. There's not many people that come to me um, for lying to a neighbor. There's not many people that I sit and counsel on um, theft or stealing or that, that have that, that, that ravaging impact upon self, upon soul, and upon one another. But I can tell you, hours upon hours, uh, hundreds if not more, that I've sat in a counseling room and just cried with people because of, of this, this selfish, prideful desire to exalt self in a relationship that God um, made to serve one another. And that's really where I think the rubber meets the road. That, um, that the dissolving of the union of marriage is because there's a fundamental misunderstanding of, what, of where marriage began, of where it originated, of who it belongs to, and what it is for. Um, that ultimately most of us enter in at a young age, lacking maturity, um, as young men or as young women, thinking that, that God gave me that person and I deserve her. And she's there for me. And you know the great grievance of, of many uh, of us as, as, as conservative, biblical, reformed, Baptist, um, whatever label you want to throw on there who adhere to the Word of God, is that we often utilize the very Word of God in places like Ephesians 5 to treat our wives like junk. You know? And we fall into the same realm of, of, of the Pharisees uh, utilizing the very means of grace that God has given us in His Word to lead and guide us to the original purpose of it, to, to lay our lives down as men, to have, yes, to be heads of the home and to be um, leaders and to be protectors and to be providers. And oftentimes we utilize the very Word of God as a means to just escalate and to elevate ourselves um, to this preeminent place when that was not God's original um, design. That we must understand what marriage is and who marriage is for. Um, and that where it originates from is the beginning of all that. And that's why our Lord begins there. He doesn't begin with them. He doesn't begin with man. He doesn't begin with woman. He doesn't start with their offenses. He doesn't go there. He doesn't sit them down pastorally and try to counsel them in, you know, why exactly are you leaving your wife again? Um, why exactly are you doing this? Can we, can we walk through the steps and all of these things? He doesn't do that. He takes them back because they have a fundamental misunderstanding about what marriage is altogether. And that's where we need to go. We need to go to the beginning. We need to understand that marriage originated not with man, but with God. But in Genesis 8, uh, chapter 2 and verse number 18, the Lord God said it's not good that man should be alone. But in verse 19, it says that God created the woman out of the side of a man. 
And it goes on to say that God presented the woman to the man. That God presented this relationship as a perpetual institution. It wasn't as if God um, created man and then and then man created woman and they got together and they and they you know tried to work out a, a purpose statement and a, a vision statement and and the way that this hierarchy is going to work or whether or not there's going to be a hierarchy at all. You know they didn't look at each other's attributes and think, man, this would be um, great if you did this and it would be great if you did that and we just need to coalesce and work together and you and you can take this position and that position no God ordained it God said God made God placed the restrictions God placed the purpose God gave them the uh, mandate to take dominion over all the earth. God gave them the mandate to be companions. God set the order. God made them as they were, even prior to the fall, even prior to Genesis chapter 3, prior to the serpent, that God sets the structure, that God um, gives them the reason. God puts them in their purpose, and it is incumbent upon them to submit to that purpose with joy and reverence, out of fear of God, and out of a love for Him, simply to be created in this world. And not to usurp that authority in Genesis chapter 3, because all that ever comes from usurping the authority of God and His original design, um, without submission, joyful submission and fearful reverence to a holy and a loving and a righteous God, is a fall. It is degradation. It is eroding of a union in which now man and woman are at throat to throat um, because of this sin that has inculcated within the union. And they begin casting each other under the bus. And many of you, have, any of you who have counseled know that's exactly right. You know what, if somebody counseled me in former days, and maybe in the future days, it would, it's often, it's my predisposition as well. It is our predisposition to just um, self-preserve and, to, and to, to try to look the best and to uphold and exalt ourselves in our marriage union um, and throw the other one under the bus as if it's 100% their problem and, and 0% ours. Um, whenever each one of us and whatever sin it is or whatever dispute it is should, should really be taking the mirror out and looking at our Selves, because oftentimes it is much more our fault than it is than it is theirs. Marriage is God ordained; thus, marriage is to be um, God governed. That we don't have the right as men and women to say what goes and and who goes where and what we do and this or that. You know, there are things that God doesn't speak on, and God gives us liberty to work out in our own unions, and I'm thankful for that. There are some things that are quite clear um, that we are to submit to. Um, in that marriage. Um, and, that be, and, and secondly, not only is it God-ordained, but because it is God-ordained, marriage should be honored among all. And it should be honored because it's God's institution. That's exactly what Hebrews um, teaches us. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse number 4 says, Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers God will judge. So let your conduct be without Covenant, covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may say boldly, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man can do to me. That God, that, that, that marriage is something to be guarded and protected and loved and enjoyed um, simply because God made it for that reason. It is God's institution. Thus, Hebrews 13 and verse 4 gives a great warning to us 
that judgment will come to those who dishonor it. Um, those that are fornicators. And those who step outside of the bounds of marriage, previous to marriage, and pursue the pleasure in a human relationship without the covenantal aspect of God with another person. It's an abuse of means um, that God has given um, to us to honor Him and one another. And instead, those who enter into that sin seek to gratify themselves without God. Or adultery is also God dishonoring. I mean, it's that display of, of pridefulness that steps outside the bounds of an actual covenant to break that covenant, um, which was made with that person and with God, and to unilaterally say, I do not need to keep that covenant with them. If this is to, again, oh, I'm jumping ahead of myself, um, let's redirect. Some view marriage as simply a cultural institution. Some even look forward to a day in which we as creatures will evolve to the point that we no longer need marriage. And you guys know that. You know, if I'd have preached this message 10 years ago in my early days, um, you know, it, wouldn't have made, or it would have made sense, but not quite as clear as today. I think in the last decade, we've seen just uh, marriage come under even a greater attack. It's taken full force, and today, um, I think that it is quite clear that you don't have to look for quotes hidden in books somewhere of some random person who desires to dissolve marriage. They don't mind to get on CNN or uh, sometimes even Fox News and say with uh, clarity and with conviction that marriage is, an, is, a, is, a, is a structure of antiquity um, and, and that we just used it as a means to get us to evolve to where we are and that whenever true freedom comes, we'll cast off that, that, um, that means of, of antiquity, that means of evolution, that we can, you know, that, that, that we profited from it or to, with it for a while, but now let's get rid of it. And that's exactly what we're seeing. Um, we're seeing that those who hold to a traditional biblical view of marriage are weak, um, they're backwoods, they're hillbilly, they're, un, uh, uh, they're not intellectual, they, they just don't see the future, the wave of the future that's, that's coming. That it, marriage to most is a blemish that will one day fade into the history of man as we sweep into some far greater um, structure. It's archaic, it's, it's a paradigm created by the patriarch to oppress women, to propagate man and, and we need to cast it off and that feminism is the new way homosexuality is the new way transgenderism is the new way polyamory is the new way you know and that is coming down it's not coming down the pike it's here you know and it's been here for a while and now they're just more vocal about it than they've ever been because they've got roots and places um, and that's what we have to have to battle with um, and that's true if it's a man-made institution. That's not true if it's a God-ordained institution. Um, thus, we need to regard it as God regards it. Um, and there's a fight before us. It's somewhat like this. I think most of you have a high view of the Word of God. It's God-breathed. It's His. We're not to take it and do as we please. It affects, um, it affects how we approach the Word of God, believing that. Um, this affects how we preach uh, we don't invent, we're not creators, we're not innovators. You know, and when we do that, I have people often come talk to me, you know. Um, and I appreciate that. I thank God for that. Uh, for men and women who will be good Bereans, faithful to the Word of God, to see whether or things, these things are, are so or not. 
Um, so we handle the Word of God with care. Why? Because it originates with, the word, with, with God Himself. It's His, it's not ours. We are simply to be stewards and to be faithful with it. And the same is true of marriage. That just as this is not a man-made document, it, be, it belongs to God, so does the institution of marriage. We don't have the right to do with it anything and everything that we please. We don't have a, lot, a right to cast it off and to pursue other things that we think may be more beneficial for our home, for our family, and ultimately for society. Uh, we, don't have to, we don't need to seek God's approval for some new and inventive and creative way. We simply need to know God's Word, what He says, and honor it um, because it's His design. And His design is given to us for a particular reason. And that, that marriage design is not arbitrary. It's not something that, um, that He just concocted one day because He thought that it was a cool idea in eternity past. Ephesians 5 and verse number 31 um, teaches us that um, the marriage design is rooted um, in, in an era even before creation. Ephesians 5, 30, uh, Ephesians 5, you probably know, it's where we get our, um, our, 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 one of our most in-depth teaching, if not our most in-depth teaching in the New Testament concerning husbands and wives and parents and, and the, the, the way the family unit operates. And God gives instructions there as to how the husband is to operate with the wife and the wife vice versa. And on in chapter 6, children with parents and, and vice versa and then employees and employers. But in verse number 31, you see that great phrase, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. I speak concerning Christ and the church. That the term mystery there is not something that is, is necessarily speaking of something that is, is God is trying to keep a secret, but something that had not yet been revealed. That under the new covenant in Christ, there's a revelation of God's glory and His purpose in, um, in Christ and in, in His bride that then He transposes and pulls out the reality of marriage from that. And He says, actually... Um, what I did in days past at the constitution of the marriage union um, is I did that because of Christ in His church, not vice versa. I mean, it wasn't like God looked at, um, at marriage one day and He thought, man, Paul, would that be great for Paul to use as an illustration of the love that I have for his bride? No, the, 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 the creation ordinance is not preeminently designed to cure loneliness or to propagate the world with with little boys and little girls and little, uh, little ones who will run around and, 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 um, and spread across the world. But the ultimate reason that God created marriage was to reflect the eternal relationship between Christ and His bride. That He doesn't look at marriage and it suddenly dawns on Him. Again, that's a good illustration. Um, no, He looks at Christ and His precious bride, the elect from all ages, and He says, I want to reflect that in time and reality in the very world that I make. I will make an institution that reflects it um, gloriously, and I will call it marriage. It will be a one flesh union. Thus, He creates male and female. That the union of a man and a woman reflects the wonderful yet mysterious union of Christ and His bride. Think about the dignity that that places on the ordinance of marriage. That this places our marriage as men on a sacred plane. It tells us that the glory of God is revealed in the sacramental union, or in the union of you and your wife. That men, you are stewards, of, as stewards of your home. You are stewards of the gospel in that sense. That our marriage is, 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 is making a proclamation about Christ and His church, whether it's poor or whether it's well. 
Bunyan, as a result, exhorted his church husbands to be such a believing husband to your believing wife that she may say, God, he preaches to me every day the way that Christ preaches to his church. The way a child looks at his father. They should be able to learn from him and in his interactions with his wife something of the sacrificial love that God has given to his, that God is for his people. The mothers, they, they should be able to watch the way you respond with respect to your husband and the way you honor him and care for him and learn the way of a Christian. That the church is, and the way that a church, the church is supposed to respond to Christ. That this is one of the ways that we as Christians can be a witness, a gospel witness to those that are all around us. Listen, and if that's true, and I believe that it is, then the reality is this, that if anyone is going to honor God in their marriage, you must be born again. It should not be surprising to you or to me what the world has done with the institution of marriage, but it should be alarming what we've done with it. You know? The truth and the reality of the matter is, is that if this thing is spiritual in nature, and it's more than just a physical one flesh union, um, then to truly honor God in your marriages, you must receive the Word of God. You know, uh, Matthew chapter number 19 um, is a parallel account of Mark chapter number 10. And it's a little bit different, but for the most part, it's, uh, it's the same. There are some exceptions there that you don't see in Mark. Um, and there's some debate over that, and we'll probably talk about that in the next couple of weeks. But this is the way the conversation ends after Jesus um, teaches on marriage and divorce. He says in verse 11, but he said to them, all cannot accept this saying. Actually, let's go back to verse 10. You'll get kind of the context. His disciples said to him, if such is the case then, like, uh, of a man with his wife, like it's better not to marry. That's their, if we can't get divorced anywhere and any time that we want, you know, if there's these limitations upon marriage, then it's probably better. They, say, they come to the conclusion, his disciples, not the Pharisees, the disciples say it's better for us not to marry. Jesus says in verse 11, um, but it, all cannot accept the saying, but only those to whom it's been given. All cannot accept the saving, but only to those who have been given. For there are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have been made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He who is able to accept him, let him accept it. You know, this is very reminiscent of the language in Matthew chapter 13. Who, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. He who has eyes to see, let him see. You know, Jesus' argument there is um, that this is a hard saying. The disciples say, I'm not sure that anybody can do this. Jesus says, if you have ears to hear, then hear it. You can, you know, if you have eyes to see, then, then see it. And he gives evidence that it's, that it's happened and it continues to happen. He says there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom's sake. There's eunuchs all around you. There's people who have determined in their own life or they've been made that physically by men or they were born without the ability um, to, 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 to have a, a wife or to procreate or various things. There's a lot of um, ideas there um, contained within the text, but he's saying that, that there have been people that have received it before and if you will hear it today, then it can happen. That that is his design, that it is his um, purpose in marriage, that it is not unattainable if you'll hear it today. That, that God can give you a heart for His purposes, for the original design of marriage, and He can give you a love for your wife like Christ loved the church, and He can give your wife a love for you like the church loves Christ, this reciprocal, submissive relationship for where we're not um, uh, you know, just, just 
hitting each other over the head all day long and at each other's necks, but we are serving one another and our, our children can see that. He says that that's a possibility today, that that is available to you if, if you'll hear it. You know? Like if you'll open your eyes and you'll look. If you'll stop looking in the mirror and, 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 and building your own kingdom and, 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 and trying to, to accomplish something uh, and, and to be a tyrant over your wife or to be a tyrant over your husband or to, or to be a tyrant over your children. And if you stop, just sit down for a moment and just think on the great glories of Christ and think about what I've accomplished in days past through other men. Just look there at that gospel. Like if you'll hear it today, it's a possibility. That it's, it's, it's more than a possibility. It's, it's, it's yours if you'll listen. Um, that you can receive it. And that it's only those who receive it that can live it. Because it can only be lived by the very power of God Himself. That that's the purpose. That it originates with God and that truly only believers can honor God um, in their marriage. Why? Because it's spiritual in nature that it is to be a gospel Ordinance. And that's what family was given for as well. The entire family unit was for, is a means uh, to, to glorify God in your activity and your relationships um, one with another. That what we have to guard against, probably more than just casting off Scripture to do what we want in this context, is often raising family up to the place of idolatry and thinking that if we can, uh, you know, just have the perfect little ones and this and that and just give the external, uh, the exterior that we have it all together and that we just pursue the family. And listen to me, I love the family. But the family is only as eternally um, efficient as God ordained it. And God ordained it as a means to glorify Himself through the covenantal relationships within it to project the gospel to those relationships and to a dying world and to the church. That our family is, even in a religious, even in a Christian context, what you find out is that sometimes you even have to cast off family. The family is not the ultimate end. Matthew 19 and verse number 29. You know, and if you study through the book of the New or through the, through the entirety of the New Testament, particularly the Gospels, let's just go with the Gospels. Jesus' teaching on the gospel, in the Gospels related to family can boil, be boiled down to about 27 verses. Um, and 16 of those verses or so um, relate to family in the abandonment of it for Christ. And I'm not saying you need to abandon your family today for Christ. But I am saying that the ultimate reality is, is that God created these things for Himself, not you for them. That your service through the, to them is for the purpose of Christ. For example, in Matthew 19 and verse number 29, you read these words. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. The many who are first will be last and the last first. And we could go on and replicate that 15 other times in the New Testament. That God's plan for the family, God's plan for your marriage, God's plan for your parenthood, God's plan for you children is to operate in God's design for the purpose of gospel proclamation and gospel propagation to spread image bearers of God across the world as they receive Christ. And that sometimes within the family unit, um, when that, object, that is objected to, you may have to leave a mother. 
You may have to leave a father. You may have to leave a son. You may have to leave a daughter. Why? For the purpose of Christ. Because they stand in opposition for what that thing was created for. And that is probably one of the hardest things that ever has to be done. It's hard to believe in our context in America that that's the case. But go over to Islam. Go over to Muslim countries and you'll find it happening all the time. Muslims come into Christ in closed quarters today. Um, and as soon as they hear about, um, as soon as the family hears about the gospel and the baptism and things like that, you know what happens? Total abandonment, total shunning. You know why? Because Christ is ultimate. Um, something willing. But interestingly enough, in all of those verses, you know what I don't find? I don't find them say, leave a wife. I don't find them say, leave a husband. I actually find in 1 Corinthians that if this person is an unbeliever, that you're to stay. Why? Because there is a something special that happens within the covenantal union that brings you together as one flesh. That even sons and daughters don't have. That even sons and wives, or, 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 or mothers and daughters don't have. That even brothers and sisters don't necessarily have. That there's a covenantal union that happens in Genesis chapter 2 and every single time a, a, an unbelieving or believing spouses come together that make it somewhat seemingly unique. And our Lord never says to abandon the relationship. Paul and Christ even encourages us to keep it. Why? Because it represents a covenantal union between Christ and His bride Himself. That this union is only to be dissolved um, by death. That seems to be. Just as our union with Christ will only ever be dissolved by death. And guess what? If you're in Christ, you'll never die. That's the union will be perpetual and permanent um, all throughout eternity. And that's exactly what you see. That it's imperative for you to be a believer, to know what God means and what God desires for your marriage. It's imperative for you to be a believer, to receive God's Word, to understand what it means to cleave to your wife. To cleave to your wife. And I'm going to give these to you quick because I know time is running short. But in the Old Testament use of the term cleave, it's used to speak of um, somewhat of a glue. Clods of dirt that once were clung together. So what does it mean for a husband and wife to cleave together? Um, it was used of armies that made a pact together. It was used of clods of dirt that came together. Uh, it was used of things that were almost glued together. Uh, but more importantly, I would love for you to just um, think on this. It, it's a technical term often used in the Old Testament for making a covenant. In Deuteronomy 10 and verse number 20, I'm going to turn there. And I'll give you some other references that we just don't have time to go to. But in Deuteronomy 10 and verse number 20, you read these words. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve in this to the nation of Israel. And to, you, to him you shall hold fast and take oaths in his name. That word there, hold fast, is the exact same word used in Genesis chapter 2, um, the word cleave. Hold fast. Cleave. In Deuteronomy 11, verse 22, For if you carefully keep all the commandments which I commanded you to love uh, the Lord your God and walk in His ways and to hold fast to Him. We could go on in Deuteronomy 13, 4, Deuteronomy 30, 20, Joshua 22, 5, Joshua 23, 8, and we could go on and on and on. And the idea is this, is that when you enter into a marriage, it is not simply a contract or a benign agreement. The idea is that there's a, a, a covenant made between two individuals and also um, with God. 
If you were to turn to Malachi chapter number two, and you don't need to, I'll read it to you. But for later, if you'd like to turn there, Malachi chapter number two and verse number 13, you read these words. And this is the second thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying. So he does not regard the offering anymore, nor receive it uh, with goodwill from your hands. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth with whom you have dealt with treacherously. Yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. By covenant. That in the relationship, Malachi argues there that the covenant was made as God is a witness and a wife by covenant. That in marriage, we leave father and mother and pledge our covenant faithfulness one to another and God witnesses it. It's a relationship, a covenant made between three persons, man, woman, and God. And that's why your um, your uh, marriages are often um, spoken of in that way. The pastor or the preacher will get up and he'll say, I'm in the midst of God and many witnesses. There's this covenant that's made, this one flesh union. If you're not a believer, you know, it's hard to understand that. It's hard to understand what it means to be joined together. Uh, many today believe that the ultimate purpose of of uh, the, the one flesh union is a physical union with physical intimacy, um, while that just pales in comparison to the spiritual reality that that physical union expresses. That you have more than just the joining together of two lives and personalities. Um, that you come together as a unit, as one man and one woman that is like a clot of dirt, that when it's brought together, it cannot be severed. Otherwise, you take parts of those individuals um, with you. That's the idea. At the very first marriage of Adam and Eve, God joined together um, husband and wife. And I believe what's talking about there is talking about the institution of marriage. Um, not just every single marriage, although that would be subsequent. Um, that in Matthew chapter 19 and in Mark chapter number 10, um, it uses language like um, what instead of who. What God has joined together not who God has joined together. Don't separate it. That the institution of marriage in and of itself is what is to be guarded. That the, the joining together there, the, 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 the one flesh union um, is, is, is a covenantal aspect of coming together and uh, with God in the institution of marriage. And, it shouldn't, and marriage in and of itself as an institution should not be destroyed. That's the idea. Um, John MacArthur says marriage is first of all God's institution and God's doing regardless of how men may corrupt or deny it or disregard it in his part. Whether it's between faithful believers or rank pagans or atheists or whether it's arranged um, by the parents uh, or by mutual desire or consent by the bride or groom, marriage as a general social relationship is above all the plan of the work of God for the procreation, pleasure, and preservation of the race, whether it's entered wisely or foolishly, sincerely or insincerely, selfishly or unselfishly, with great or little commitment. God's design for every marriage is that it would be permanent until death of one of the spouses. One flesh, he goes on to say, signifies a couple bound in a covenant modeled after God's covenant with his people. That the man or the woman of the, in the Old Testament would make a vow and take an oath in the sight of God in all seriousness. And for a man to break his word and his promise was to imply that God himself is not faithful. That's the gravity of it. That our relationships, whether you're a believer or whether you're an unbeliever, um, expresses a truth and a reality by God once the institution of marriage is entered into. 
And that's why when pagans enter into marriage, they're bound as much as, as, as Christians or other believers, right? That it's not something that just believers come together and they do, and then it's sacred. It's something that God ordained as sacred in creation and thus extends to all humanity, that it is God's. And that in that one flesh union and that covenant together, you enter into a relationship that cannot be separated. And I don't have time to develop this, but in, in Leviticus chapter number 18 and verse number 7, you'll read an account of things that you're, you're not supposed to do. Um, and one of those things is that you're not to see the nakedness of other people. And I think he's talking about euphemisms of marrying. And you're, it's, it's people that you're supposed to interrelate with and you're not. There was, there was boundaries for marriage. And... Um, and one of those boundaries is, is you're not supposed to marry your, your, your father's wife, you know, which would be your mother. And then in the very next verse, he goes on to say that you are not to marry um, your, your, father's, uh, your father's wife in a, in, a, in a different way. And maybe I can turn there and it'll make more sense. Leviticus chapter number 18, because um, I don't think I'm going to explain it well if I don't turn there. Leviticus chapter 18. Verse number seven, it says, the nakedness of your father, the nakedness of your mother, you shall not uncover. She is your mother, you shall not uncover your nakedness. The nakedness of your father's wife, you shall not uncover. I thought he just said that. Well, he did concerning the person's mother, but here he's talking about his wife. Um, probably what he's alluding to is a second wife, a stepmother. You should not uncover it. It is your father's nakedness. The nakedness of your sister, you should not uncover. He goes on, verse number 10. The nakedness of your son's daughter um, or your, your daughter's daughter. He goes on, verse number 11. The nakedness of your father's wife's daughter, um, begotten by your father. She's your sister. You shall not uncover her nakedness. The idea is, is that whenever the covenantal union is made, they become one flesh and blood ties change. That identity is lost with the wife and it is, it is encompassed in the, in, in the male. And that not only does it change the, the union of that, but it changes the union of all those that were under it, such that even a stepson and a stepdaughter who are not blood-related biologically are not to marry because they're blood-related in ties now in the nation of Israel. The, and the point that I'm trying to make is, is that whenever the covenantal union is made between a man and a woman, a husband and a wife, everything changes to where now they are essentially as blood-related as you were to your father or you were to your mother, that there is a union that happens that is an eternal reality and has physical consequences that now you are bound to that as much and even more so than you were to your father or your to mother. And you're to leave that and to form this new family union um, which when coming together will produce um, and procreate progeny and um, that will extend to the ends of the earth. And that's what he means by one flesh. And I can take you to Genesis 29, Genesis 37, and so forth and so on, where speaking of being one flesh is spoken of as sons and daughters, of, of husbands and mothers and vice versa. That one flesh doesn't just speak of a physical union of, of intimacy coming together, but of a, a, a new relationship to where blood ties are just as significant as biological and you say, is that even important? Like, why did you just tell me all that? Well, that's important for a spiritual reality. Why? Because in Ephesians chapter number five, in verse number 28, he says, so husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who himself loves his, he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. 
That there's a spiritual reality that is propagated through that one flesh that whenever, just as Christ dies for the church and the bride covenantally unifies with Him in repentance and in faith, now you and I come to Christ and are married to Him in such a way that we are blood relatives. That I am a son of the Most High God. I am His bride. And thus, His covenant to me will never end until death. And He will never die again. Thus, the reality that is laid um, is that marriage is, again, propagating these spiritual truths. And that to step outside the boundaries of marriage with adultery or fornication um, is to ultimately lie to the world about the truth of God as we forsake the marriage institution. And that's the idea. The man leaving his father and mother and cleaving to his wife is to be taken in a covenantal context. And that's why fornication is wrong. Because it ultimately gratifies self without God. And that's why adultery is wrong. Why? Because it, it breaks covenants. And then thus lies about the truth of God. I'm saying that he too is a covenant breaker. Why? Because this is his institution. Not ours. That what God designed in marriage um, is covenantal. It's companion in nature. You know? It's two people coming together, just as Christ and His church, Christ and His bride, in such a way to labor together in the God-ordained institution and the way that He has made man and woman. How, why? For the propagation of the gospel, for the procreation of image bearers to the end of the earth so that His name would be made known. And we are, th- th- that ultimately two companions come together You see that it's covenantal. You see that it's spiritual. You see that it's um, companion in nature. I don't have time to develop the companionship nature of it, but that's probably one of the most beautiful parts of it. That in this covenant, you covenant together to be companions. That as a husband and a wife come together, it's more than just a, a dry, sterile procedure in which, you know, you come together and, carry out and fulfill duties to one another. Although sometimes that's what it is. But more than that, just as Christ relates to His church and church relates to Christ, you see this intimate union between um, both of them such they're laboring together to carry out the Great Commission in the world. And that's exactly what a husband and a wife is to do. And that it's only in the covenantal companionship in this world that is ever marked by a seal of an oath a fidelity before God and man and those who have assembled and which is only to be dissolved by, by death. There's no other relationship in the world like it. Just like there's no other relationship like the relationship you have with Christ and, and He has with you. And that's what it should also emblemize, man. So you should have a relationship with your wife like you have with no other man or, no other man or woman in the world. There's some uh, ministries that are just advocating for a group of men in which you can confide in that you just can't confide in with anybody else. Listen, if you can't confide in your wife um, and she's not the ultimate uh, expression of the intimate relationship that you have with God and man, then, then, um, then you're living your marriage out all wrong. And she is ultimately, the, should be the most... Um, intimate relationship that you have in this world and that should be vice versa. There shouldn't be a group of women that you have that you can tell things um, to to them that you've never told to your husband. You know? Um, That you should be able to talk to her and to pray with her and to be confide in her in such a way that, that whenever you pray together, there's no surprise because everything that you've told God, you can tell her. 
you know? That God gives you this special relationship in this world, in Christ, that is just phenomenal. And Jonathan Edwards, on his deathbed um, at Princeton, told his daughter these words as he was about to take his last breath. He said, tell your mother what we have had is such an uncommon union as I trust is spiritual and thus will last forever. I have a union with her in this world that is just beyond recognition. It's covenantal in nature and thus we are companions for life until death do us part. I want to read one more thing to you and then we'll be done. Robertson McQuilkin is a former president of a Bible college. He writes these words concerning his wife as he steps down. He says, My dear wife Muriel has been failing in mental health for about eight years. So far, I've been able to carry her ever-growing need in my leadership responsibilities of the college. But recently, it has become apparent that Muriel is contented most of the time she's with me and almost none of the time when I'm away. It's not that she's just discontent. She's filled with fear, even terror that she's lost me, and she always goes and searches whenever I leave home. Then she may be full of anger when she can't find me. He goes on to say in relationship to his resignation, so it's clear she needs me now full time. Perhaps it would be help you to understand if I shared with you what I shared um, in my time of resignation in the chapel. This decision was made in a way 42 years ago when I promised to care for Muriel in sickness and in health due, till death do his part. So I told the students and the faculty as a man of my word of integrity that this is something to do with it. But, not so, but, but so does fairness. She's cared for me fully and sacrificially all these years. If I cared for her for the next 40 years, I would not be out of debt. Duty, however, is, can be grim and stoic, but there's more. I love Muriel. She's a delight to me. Her childlike dependence, her confidence in me, her warm love, her occasional flashes of wit, which I used to relish, her happy spirit, and taught, me, and taught, and taught resilience, tough resilience in the face of her continual distressing frustration. I do not have to care for her. I get to, and it's a high honor to care for such a wonderful person. It's a covenant companionship marked by loyalty, by trust, by love, and by faithfulness. You see, when you begin to understand as a believer the purpose of marriage altogether, you realize that I am there for them and they are not there for me. You realize that divorce is not um, an option like the Pharisees. They may go, but I will stay, as Paul recommends and, and encourages us in 1 Corinthians 7. Why? Because the, the covenantal union, it's, it's spiritual in nature. It represents a love for Christ, as we read in Hebrews 13.4, after that honorable quote on marriage, um, you read that he says, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. That in our marriages, in our covenantal unions, in our companionship, in our love for one another, in our faith to one another, we um, propagate a reality, about a, 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 a truth about God. And the question that I would have for us this morning is not what are the Pharisees doing with marriage, but what are we? And what are we teaching our children about the gospel as we interact with our as we interact with our husband or we interact with our wives, 
As we relate to one another in the context of the church and people glean in, do they see the reality of Christ in such a, a magnanimous way? Not because you're anything special, but because of what God has wrought in you by His Spirit. So what about divorce, you ask? What about it? What about homosexuality? What about the transgender movement? What about all that? Again, what do we expect? They're unbelievers. We love to give the Pharisees a hard time for who they are and for what they did. But they're unbelievers. And, they, and because they were unbelievers, they had a skewed view of what marriage was. You say, how do you know that? Why? Because a godly man doesn't just forfeit his wife because he understands um, the covenantal companionship nature that God originated with God for the purpose of propagating eternal truth. Thus he bows the knee and washes his wife's feet. So the question is not, what about them? The question is, is what about you? And I'm almost convinced that the condition of our nation is in the condition that it is because the church has been so confused and often days rebellious concerning this issue of the doctrine of marriage and what it is and what it is there for, you know? Because most of the time when we get angry with our wives, what is it? Or we get angry with our husbands, it's, it's what about me? Marriage is not about you. Listen, this life has never been about you. Whether you're married or whether you're single, and I think that this is one of the greatest doctrines for singleness, you know? Because if family, if marriage and all that was the ultimate end, then, then what, what, what place is there for singleness, you know? Christ is the ultimate end. And Christ can be, um, can be tasted and He can be uh, intimately related to and He can be experienced through Christ and His church that that's the ultimate reality. And I encourage you uh, as a young person that if you can do that, Paul says that that's better. You know, and that may sound foreign to some of you, but that's Paul's encouragement. As Paul was like that, if you can, if you can keep at bay the, the earnest, uh, you know, natural desires of a husband or, a, or, or as a man or as a, a woman, and he says then, then that's a gift and you should pursue ministry in some capacity outside of that. But if not, marry and it's a good thing and pursue it. But know today that, listen, it's not about you. Like, this life has never been about you. Um, this life has never been about me. This church is not about you. This church is not about me. Uh, this, this, this ministry is not about you. It's not about me. Having children is not something to give me fulfillment and find personal pleasure. And my marriage is not about self-actualization and finding my own potential. It's about Christ and about Christ alone. And you pursue Him in whatever way that it is and you seek to elevate the truth of God in the way that you interact with your wife and your husband and your children. And if not, we're abusing the means that God has given us for ourselves and it's prideful and we need to repent and pursue Christ. And that's exactly what the Pharisees were doing. And that's the great grievance and the great treachery and the great rebellion against the holy God to utilize the means of grace that He's given so that you may know Him, that He might funnel that to you through these institutions and through the Word of God and through these relationships and we utilize them as tools for our own pleasure. We objectify them and we, and we make the world all about us and we become the Son and everything revolves around us and we are wrong. 
And that's what the world's teaching you. That's what's coming down the pike. That's, that's, that's what the, uh, critical race theory. That's what intersectionality. That's what the homosexual movement. That's what the transgender movement. That's what the feminists started um, decades ago and maybe even uh, uh, centuries in the making. This is what man has always done. It's all about you. Do what you want. Do what makes you happy. And I'm telling you today, that's a, that's a doctrine from hell itself that's created by the devil who ages ago said in heaven against the very creator himself, I will, I will, I will. And that needs to go today. That marriage is not about you. Marriage is not about me. It is about living a life in a covenantal context, um, staying whenever, when the world says you should go, when things go wrong and everybody's encouraging you to abandon ship. They need to see your faithfulness to them. They need to see that whenever the world says you should just leave them by the side or you should just let her go, she's just a, you know, a millstone around your neck or this or that, then you need to show them by the grace of God, the grace that He's wrought in your heart, and you say, until death do us part, I will stay until death do us part. Why? Because more than for the sake of my children, it projects a reality about God and I have lied about Him enough. And we should say as men and we should say as women, we will lie no more. And marriage is not ours. It is His. He deserves it. He determines it. Um, and if I've entered into it, then I owe it to Him. Thus, I owe certain things to her. And she owes certain things to me. Um, and we owe certain things to our children. And they owe certain things to us. What are you doing with God's marriage? I didn't ask, what are you doing with your marriage <laughs> on purpose? Because it's not yours. It's His. It is ours, in a sense, because He gives it to us. But not to be creators or inventors or this or that. Um, but to be stewards. How are you stewarding that? And again, I know that that's a sober charge there at the end, but man, it is glorious, isn't it? And some of you know, and I look into your lives and I look into your marriages and I, and I just glean the glory of Christ. I see just such a love for, for wives and such a love for husbands and man, it just, it edifies and builds me up. And I pray that others see that in our marriage as well, as imperfect as we are. Um, we just see the glory of Christ perpetuating in us. How's your marriage? How's God's marriage? What about the Pharisees? What about divorce? We'll get to that. What about you? What about me? What about our wives? What about our husbands? What about our children? If that's you, then I beg you to repent and pursue her today. I beg you, if you're an unbeliever today, none of this makes sense. That was the point of the message. But if you have ears to hear, today you'll come to Christ. Repent and believe. Um, He'll give you a new heart. He'll make you a child of the Most High God. He'll bring you into a blood relationship that is even stronger than blood ties um, in which you will never die because He will never die. That union will never be dissolved until death and He will never die. If that's you today, I beg you, I implore you, I, I offer you um, the grace of Christ if you'll come. Let's pray. Father, we love and thank you and praise you again for the blessing of the preaching of God's Word. Father, we pray that we were faithful today. God, even in my insufficiency, my inability, and often days my 
desire to do other things. I thank you, Father, for stepping outside of me, stepping around me and operating in me, Father, in a way that's honoring to you. God, I pray we've worshipped you today. I pray we've given you something that's honoring to your name. As impossible as that seems, we realize that in Christ all things are possible and that you enable us to do that. Praise God for that. Making the insufficient sufficient in Christ, making the incapable capable in Christ, making the unholy holy in Christ. We glory in that. Father, we pray for our marriages. We pray for your marriage. It's yours. God, God, how often we lie to the world about you through the way we interact with our significant others, those whom we've covenanted with in the sight of God, made promises to in the sight of God and man. And in some sense, Father, we recognize that we'll never be perfect, that that glory will never be fully manifested until that great day. But until then, Father, we pray that you would help us to pursue it. We pray, Father, that we would be faithful that you would just continue to grow us, continue to show us areas, Father, where we can be more Christ-like, where we can love our wives more faithfully like Christ loved the church, where our wives, Father, can love us as the church is to love Christ, where we can just be that display, Father, of faithfulness to our children and the gospel message might reign free um, in their eyes, Father, and in their hearts. I pray that you'd use these marriage unions in this church as a means, Father, to propagate the gospel to their children. I pray, Father, that they would be a great means to bring their children to Christ because of the love that you've given each of them, Father, and their covenant faithfulness. Lord, I pray that the world would just bask in the glory of Christ as a result of the unions of this congregation. That you'd help us to carry the gospel faithfully, not only in our mouths, Father, but in our lives, particularly in our, in our marriage unions. Lord, and we know that we need your spirit to accomplish all this because... On our best days, in our natural selves, Father, um, we would, we'd save ourselves every time. Father, give us a sacrificial spirit to lay our lives down on the altar for Christ. And may it be manifested in a sacrificial life to my wife. Father, I have so failed in that area, and I am sorry. And just pray, Father, that you would sustain me and that she would see the glory of Christ and what you're accomplishing in my life in the coming days. Lord, we need this because we can't accomplish it ourselves. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.